Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. What's up, everybody? My name is Indy, and the gentleman right over here, right next to me, that is Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting. And this is a super special episode of Indie Game Business. Today we got Joe Lieberman, and he is from Antlion, and he's an industry veteran. And we are talking about the constantly evolving game business scene and how you can adapt to it. Hopefully. Yeah. And, and Dan and I are trying to remember how to do this because we've, um, it's been a while since we had a, a live podcast. So, uh, but yes, anyway, uh, we are here. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show. I have to admit, Joe, like, asked me like a year ago if we could get him on the show. And Two years ago. the Discord message got fallen between the cracks. And he's like, hey, you never responded to this. And I was like, oh, shit, you're right. So, anyway, uh, after a, you know, long overdue, Joe, tell us how you got into the industry initially and walk us through your career up to this point. Okay. Uh, boy. So I was a sophomore at University of Florida, go Gators. And I wanted to work in video games like most college kids did. And uh, the problem with that was I was failing calculus too. <laughs> and um, yeah, so my, my life as a software engineer was quickly fading. Uh, but then I ran into somebody in the game industry um, who was at that point the uh, senior producer at Star Wars galaxies if anybody remembers that game oh hell yes anyway john told me hey you know the game industry doesn't really need more people who can program it needs people who know business and i said hmm, that's something i could do uh so i set off on a, a merry quest to like learn as much as i could about the business side of games and i stumbled into the dexterity forums which we were just mentioning the uh, which would later become the indie game forums or i don't i don't even remember exactly what the name was if that's correct um, but it was sort of the, a congregation place for indie game developers. And the thing I noticed is there were a lot of people there talking about making games, but very few people talking about selling them. And so uh, I started making some posts and asking people if they needed help with marketing. I made uh, $25 my first month of posting there. I, I charged somebody $25 to write some press releases and, and put together, you know, I started putting together a press list of people myself, which was much easier back then than it is now. Maybe we'll talk about that. Um, and yeah, um, that was 2003. And the rest, as they say, is history. From there, uh, I started doing more and more work with indies. I founded, a, you know, I established an actual business, a business name, BG Smart. I went on to uh, be the marketing guy behind a lot of, I would say, well-known indie games over the years, uh, including some publishers and some uh, some, some other folks. Uh, Clay Entertainment, their very first game. I worked with uh, Wargaming.net when they were still an indie studio uh, before they made World of Tanks. 
there was a game called Massive Assault I worked on, um, Spiderweb Software, all those old school CRPGs uh, from Jeff Vogel, uh, you know, and, and well-known indie uh, titles, um, To the Moon, um, Guns of Icarus. Uh, I worked on the RPG Maker engine, uh, RPG Maker XD and Ace. Uh, and then uh, throughout those years of doing that, I also sort of ended up in a bunch of different weird jobs um, as, as doing doing marketing. Um, I worked with Arcade Town, who did casual game publishing uh, from 2006 to 2013, technically. Uh, and as well as uh, in 2016, I took a job with Antline Audio to be their marketing director and bring this guy, the Mod Mike, into the world. Uh, as you're hearing it now, it's a microphone you can attach to any pair of headphones. So you can turn these nice R70Xs into the ultimate gaming headset. And I, I stumbled into that job because I wanted a product like that, couldn't find one, and then accidentally stumbled into a job posting for Antlion Audio looking for somebody to do marketing because they were having trouble finding their audience. Um, and I would say I've been greatly successful in bringing the mod mic to the world since 2016. So that's the brief career trajectory. <laughs> there's a, there's always a, a brief career trajectory. So I actually have ties to star Wars galaxies as well. Uh, when I was in college before star Wars galaxies, Raph was, he had a mud called legend mud and I played that damn game like, Religiously, Gosh, right, Raph. Yes, and and I actually ran into him at a casual connect many many years later, and I told him I was like, "Hey, look, we haven't met yet, but we haven't met in person. But way back in the day, you know, I played Legend Mud. It's one of the reasons I got into the industry." And he got all excited. And he's like, "Do you? Oh, do you remember your character?" And I'm like, "Good God, Raph, I'm, I'm doing good to remember what I had for breakfast yesterday morning. Don't remotely ask me what you know what character I ran back in the day on that thing." Um, so you've covered a good bit. And I think Arcade Town was where you and I first met because we were doing our own. I think at that point we had transferred the agency into a publishing arm. And that was one of the distribution points that we had was, you know, Arcade Town. And that's one of the things that I always, you know, at least that that time period is one of the things that I always look at when you know people start ranting and raving about Steam's thirty percent is the fact that you know back then you had companies like Big Fish that were taking eighty percent, and right. it was absolutely. We even knew somebody who was taking; uh, they were taking eighty six percent, eighty no eighty four percent. Holy shit! Right, A developer got sixteen percent of the revenue, but. It's also important to look at the context of that, right? So one of the clients I had in the, in the past, Amaranth Games, they made the games Avion and, and several others, a couple hidden object games. Uh, we took, it, it, it's essentially a completely separate audience in the indie game scene, right? It mm -hmm. was at that time, at least. Um, so we took like somebody who was selling on Steam and they were making some money or Actually, maybe not even on Steam. Maybe it was direct still at that time. It doesn't matter. But they were selling, you know, their RPG. And we took it to Big Fish Games and reached a completely new audience that we hadn't before. And um, Amanda won't mind. Uh, we did over 3 million in gross sales on Steam, uh, on Big Fish alone. 
With, the, would, with the RPG made an RPG maker. It, it was absolutely a case of, you know, they, they talk in the movie industry now about, you know, all these movies are made with China in mind because China's such a big market. And if you miss out on China, you're, ba you're basically screwed. Big Fish was China, but they were in Seattle. It's like if you were yeah. doing a game for this audience and you didn't get a good launch on Big Fish, you were screwed. Now, if you even got a mediocre launch, I mean, you could take a $50,000 hidden object game and make millions off of it just because of the reach that they had. But there were, I, I think we had 20 different sites that we would, you know, publish on. And even to this day, aside from mobile, those games still don't do well on Steam. You know, I'm pretty sure Big Fish is still around, but they're not, they're a, a, a distant shadow of what they were. Yeah, it's, it's funny to think back to the insane parties they'd throw because they had they were just swimming in money. Like it was, I mean, you know, for yes, you're for all my clients getting their, you know, six figure checks from them, which is nothing to sneeze at. You know, Big Fish was getting seven, eight figure checks. Right? Yes. Like, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it's one of those things that you know we've seen that kind of cycle. You know, we, we, everybody was doing direct and retail. And then, you know, Steam came along and, you know, some of the digital distribution stuff. And then everybody went to that. And now a lot of those digital distribution network, I mean, just pages and stores and everything have absolutely congealed back into one and with the iOS. And we're seeing that cycle go all over again because go ahead. And I've got to, the dog is looking at me like she wants to go outside. I'm going to set this up and then I'm going to let you roll with it. You were talking right before we went live about the, uh, what you call it, the dexterous error when everybody was making their, all the publishers were making their own launchers and, and things like that. Well, Go into that for a second while I let the dog out. And Yeah, you, you we'll, go let the dog out. I'll take yes. care of this. The, the community. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, so what I was talking about actually was at the very beginning when I started, uh, not the beginning of the game industry by any leap, uh, was what I like to call the dexterity era for um for indie games, which was when every everyone had their own sort of, every developer had their own website, and that's how you made money, is you sold your game directly. Uh, oftentimes, with a physical CD, like you would, somebody would buy a product, you would literally burn the CD at home for a lot of the smaller indies, uh, and pack it up yourself and, and mail it. Uh, and that's the way we did business. You know, the big win for, uh, for me on the marketing side is getting an indie game onto the PC Gamer CD, which is still a thing then, and PC Gamer was still a thing then. Um, so this was like a real early, this is 2003, 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. And Dexterity was the name of the uh, the forum that every every indie game used, indie game developer used. Um, so what Jay and I were just talking about though, is really that these there's these cycles of basically large amounts of money that, that come into the indie game world. Uh, and this has nothing to do with the big publishers and the way that big publishers make money. It's all about, you know, single man studios. How do you make money as a single man studio? How do you make money as a five man studio? Um, that was the tiniest of tiny golden ages, right? The plus side was that you could make $20 on an, on any game, regardless of how big or small it was. And some of these games could fit on a floppy disk, right? And you'd still sell it for 20 bucks. And everybody did. I... Uh, that was a brief glimmer of a golden age. 
And then Steam came along and Steam had its curated system. And back during the curated system before Greenlight, you had to actually pitch your game to Steam like they were a publisher. And that was another golden age, right? Another golden opportunity. And in order to get your game onto Steam in that time, you either had to get basically lucky or know somebody, uh, which was a great time for me because I knew somebody, right? So I would take <laughs> games up to uh, up to Seattle and I would say, hey, everybody, I've got this cool game. You know, please take a look at it. And, uh, and voila, to put that into context, a game that essentially would be a zero sales game today was basically guaranteed to make about 50 grand. And a game that was decent was guaranteed to make six or seven figures. It was just money. You, you were just printing money as indie developers. And then Greenlight came out and, you know, there, there was a big rush of indie developers to the platform, which is continuing on today. And that I'm not saying you can't make money as an indie developer on Steam, far from it, but I don't remember what the average number is. But on average, if you take every single Steam launch and average out the sales of a, of, a, of indie games it's actually it's actually laughably small right the the hits win um i, I always liked uh the late um total biscuit uh he used to use the term good isn't good enough you know you can't just have a good game you have to have a great game on steam now and that didn't used to be the case which is hilarious um and there will be uh, as we move forward more and more uh opportunities like this that roll around um we just sort of passed one which was when uh it was unreal and microsoft and google stadia were all just bidding like crazy to buy up rights even temporary rights six months rights to indie games for their platform uh i i'm not going to name names but i know multiple developers who were cut six-figure checks um for their games before they launched and all they had to do was give exclusivity for half a year uh, and then you know they were free to, to sell it on other platforms uh you know for a medium to large size studio that is an okay deal but for a small studio that's bonkers you know like you didn't even sell you didn't even finish the product practically and it's you're you're already in the in the black you know um and there will be uh, as you go forward, you know, that that well may have dried up quite a bit now, but as we go forward, there's going to be another opportunity. And your goal as indie developers is to keep your eyes open for those moments and really capitalize on them. See them for what they are and capitalize. Uh, and sometimes they happen real fast. Sometimes they don't, though. You know, the the um, I think Steam, when it when it launched, kind of took everybody by surprise on how successful it was. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe somebody out there was more clever than I was. Uh, casual games are the same way too, by the way. Casual games is another era where you could just, as as Jay was saying, I know people who spent fifty grand to make a hidden object game and walked away with a million plus dollars. Like it was, the, the, and it took them like three months to make these games. Right? It was insanity. Uh, it, and a it lot was of that much easier with... before people started demanding quality. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That was... A lot of that had to do with. Um, a lot of it had to do with the price they used to charge too, right? In the beginning, um, we always said that at Arcade Town, I, my favorite anecdote from Arcade Town is this. Uh, the game publisher won't be happy until we're paying the players to pay, play our games. Uh, the, you know, the price of casual games used to be $20, just like the indie games. Uh, $20 per game 
and then it like there was like the subscription model and eventually it dropped to like i don't know two dollars uh, you know ios one dollar like that's <laughs> but we're, but we're there pricing. now because we have play to earn so technically yeah that is actually happening the the prediction this, was true yes that was <laughs> uh, so but again the point was that there's all these all these moments throughout um throughout history so far and in the future there will be moments in which you'll see an opportunity and you must seize upon it if you want to to make that quick easy money so to speak you know i was saying just before like before that we started here i think the next one is likely to be something related to ar not probably not vr but ar as you know we see more adaptation and adoption of of glasses and other devices now i could be totally wrong here this this idea could flop but with apple you know making products now in this space and and others it's pretty likely that they're going to be real starved for content right and they can't launch these products without content and they're going to realize that and then facebook and apple and probably microsoft and whoever else is going to get involved in this they're going to they're going to open their wallets right and the easiest thing for them to do is pick up indie products because they're cheap they're fast and you know they're low risk for them but for right. you guys potentially a big deal so, and my brain just shut down. AR has been around for 15 years. Yeah. And nobody gave a shit until Pokemon Go came out. <laughs> and now we're back in the, you know, are people really giving a shit again? Do you, why do you feel that that's going to be the next big space? Well, I've got a couple of thoughts about that. First, I can say, you could say technically like, hey, VR has been around a while. Remember the Virtual Boy? And we can go. Uh, the, no, 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 you can't count that one. No, that's <laughs> the same shape. Uh, <laughs> my, my point is that, you know, just because the technology has been around a while, doesn't mean the world was ready for it or the technology was ready for the world. And I think that's the big difference between AR now and AR then. Even Pokemon Go is, I mean, it's not really AR, not really. What we're talking about is the ability to really uh, dig deep. And some of it is pretty big brothery, but the ability to like have your glasses tell you the guy you're looking at when you're at an event, right? So let's say we're at PAX West and I walk up to Jay and I'm like, shit, who is this guy? <laughs> and my glasses will be like, hey, that's Jay Powell. Those kinds of those kinds of useful things, and it's not hard, right? You can't. It's not hard to imagine, right? You get a facial recognition going, and and blam, you know, it'll it'll say that's that's who this is, and uh, you don't have to have that awkward, hey, you, good to see you again. How uh, have you been? <laughs> but I'm really good at that awkward part because I never remember anybody. If it's not for name tags at conferences, nine times out of ten, I'm I'm screwed. Yeah, yeah but now you don't have to awkwardly stare at somebody's chest, uh, oftentimes a woman's chest, in order to figure out what their name is and then get a slap in the face. So yes, there are that advantages is, that is as well. The, definitely the bad side of that. Um, Sometimes so, a man's chest can get a slap in the face too. <laughs> the next question i had was do you think that the do you think that that golden age for streaming exclusivity is is really at an end because i think we're gonna see we're gonna continue to see it for a little bit no i don't think it's at an end in the same way i don't think steam is at an end right like i don't 
just because uh, the golden age is drying up or has dried up doesn't mean that the opportunity is lost, right? The, it's the easy opportunity that's lost. Uh, I don't know the exact number of titles that Unreal uh, threw money at, but it was a lot. And that number is decreasing year over year now, right? They're, they're cutting that program back. And same, same for Microsoft, right? When one starts cutting back, the other can start cutting back. Uh, well, so the opportunities Google, are decreasing. Google has definitely cut back on <laughs> yeah. Stadia. But I mean, that was a, I think a lot of us, I know, I, I know I was raising eyebrows about that when they announced it at GDC that year, that that was half caught coming out of the gate. And, you know, everybody was worried that, you know, Google's not going to stand by this because they have a track record of like dropping stuff. And then sure as hell, that's what happened. But, you know, then you've got to ask yourself, did that happen naturally because that's what Google has a tendency to do? Or did that happen because people assumed that was going to happen? They didn't support it. And then sure, shit, you know, it, it made itself. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. There are less of those companies going out there and, you know, doing this thing. But I think they're still very much, especially now that Netflix has actually come in and we have the Netflix of games, which is literally Netflix. Um, <laughs> between, <What a> shock. <laughs> between that and, you know, Xbox Game Pass, Sony's finally, you know, decided to do something similar, you know, GeForce Now. There's plenty of these things that are still out there, but that's one of the things that we always you know, have to talk to developers about. It's like, you they don't just randomly happen. I mean, sure, if your game goes completely viral this week on Steam Next Fest, somebody from Microsoft may reach out to you. But you have to go out and be looking for this stuff and be talking to people about it. Or hire somebody who knows somebody. Maybe a maybe a Jay out there, maybe the, the future version of me, uh, the, you know, me in the past, uh, I, you know, this is a thing that, that I would help a lot of my clients with. So find somebody, it's a lot easier than making the contacts yourself. I'll say that. But if you're at those events, if we ever get back to real life events, that's where these deals happen. You know, that's where the magic is. And that's the real value of going to PAX or GDC or E3. It's not the publicity you're going to get from your game. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, um, you know, get that publicity that you need, but it's the people you meet. It's, whether it's that's the networking yeah uh I, my favorite most recently just before the end of times uh was, <laughs> i was at pax east and i had a great long chat and it was on the verge of making a, an awesome deal uh with somebody from microsoft unfortunately that person from microsoft was the person in charge of mixer <laughs> Ooh. And they had no idea that they were about to be canned like as far as i know <laughs> like it just blindsided basically everybody at mixer that microsoft killed that project um, at least again, that's how I understood it. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were like super excited to work with Antlion Audio and we're like, you know, we're talking about doing all kinds of things and then, but you know, that's the, that's the, the point is you never know who you're going to meet and you have to get yourself out there and meet those people. And that's, uh, you know, what, like Hamilton says, be in the room where it happens. All right. And so Jim on, on Facebook just brought up a, a really good point, you know, talking about Oculus is funding for you know projects on their platform you know they'll hook you up with hardware and, and things like that 
that is one of the areas that has grown in the last like five years and even more so over the last two years with, with the pandemic and the fact that we couldn't go to all these conferences is there are a lot more of the untraditional you know funding sources you know that are going out there you've got mega grants you've got mm -hmm. there are multiple grants out there for you know especially yeah, minorities and, anymore and people who are underrepresented and i just next week i think we're going to be i'm one of the final bosses one of the judges for the at&t unlock thing and we're going to be giving a women-led team in the u.s a hundred thousand dollars you know for you know their project which is i mean i was stressed last year when we gave somebody 50 grand and you know now they're gonna up and double it and we're doing it more there are a lot more options out like that out there, but it's a matter I, of you, you have to go find them. I think I think that is potentially the start of another one of these golden age moments for indie developers to be looking for that flexibility, uh, this idea that you can find essentially, I mean, I wouldn't call it free funding. You know, there's some sort of expectations usually attached to these things, you know, uh, uh, Facebook's not giving this guy uh, grant money in order to make uh, his game. He's given him grant money to make his game for Oculus, right? Like, you know, not maybe not yeah, even even those exclusivity but, periods aren't nearly as bad as they used to be. That's right. Yeah, in the old days, you might have exclusivity in perpetuity, right? This yes. Is a, this is a a game for PlayStation, and you will never put it anywhere else. <laughs> Everybody else can eat shit and die. You know, it's um, it's this is. But now you know, I mean, another good golden age. Actually, I just thought of it. Uh, Xbox Live Arcade. Uh, was another huge oh my god game. yes i i had the first sudoku game published on <laughs> xbox live arcade and it did just as well as you would expect a sudoku game on a console to do so i i worked with outpost Koloki x which was a launch title and it did gangbusters so uh jim actually just commented no exclusive terms oh all right then the I, 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 I what i didn't what I meant was not um, that there was exclusivity. It's that they're giving you the money with the expect expectation of getting a, uh, you know, a game they can use in their store, right? Like, it's it's nowhere near as binding as, as things used to be. But sort of, you know, that's the string, as it were, is, yeah, obviously, they're not giving you a, a, the money to make a game for desktop PC, although it might be cross-platform. Uh, they're they're going to get something out of it. All right, so and I think time, that might be a, oh, that might be a, a good example of a of an upcoming golden age moment. As these things, I think we are not on the downward trend for um, these kinds of grant opportunities or financing opportunities where you can get cash or equipment early, uh, ideally cash, and yeah. and use that to to fund the game. Um, I think that would be a, a pretty reasonable thing. But I also not sure that we're going to see seven figure checks cut uh anytime soon for indie developers well it's like it's always been you know it, there's not going to be until somebody you know shows them a game and you know facebook or whoever it is just goes oh my god we have to have this and it's going to be huge you know as well as i do all these decisions are made on a spreadsheet so if, if they put the numbers in the spreadsheet and they're like oh my god that game will sell two million units on an oculus yeah, they'll they'll pay for it. But it always comes down to having somebody break break things wide open. That's absolutely yep. true. And uh, to some extent, VR has never had that. Other than you know, when you can look at Beat Saber and you can look at my favorite game, Thrill the Fight. The only two games on VR that I like so far still. And 
Well, we have any other VR developers out there. I have probably haven't played your game, but (laughs) VR had a very brief golden age moment. And by brief, I mean like three months where when the pandemic hit and Half-Life Alex came out, we had multiple publishers come to us who never, you know, cared one iota about VR. And they were like, what do you have in VR? And at the time we only had like one game and I was like, I can find you more. And we did. But by the time we found new titles, the the interest was already gone. I mean, it was, it was literally a very brief for a period of three or four months, right at the beginning of the pandemic, publishers were chunking a ton of money into VR. And then it just kind of, you know, died VR off. VR finds side. itself in a pretty strange place, and as far as like gaming history goes, of, of platforms, it's, I would say, it's pretty unique. In fact, in that, usually, a platform either fails immediately, uh, as we saw with I don't know uh, Google Glass or uh, <laughs> uh, any any number of other things, uh, various consoles throughout the years, or it succeeds very rarely do we find one in the the position of like intermediate failure <laughs> and that's where vr is right now it's not for a game developer it's not a successful platform right there's a handful of successful games but uh you know people keep making content for it because they believe in the idea of the platform that there's going to be something there someday so yeah, uh, i'll word about and, and we see that on you know, on VR, because we we get questions in the Discord quite frequently. It's like, so I've got a VR game, you know, what do I do? And I agree with you. Generally, when we see a fad die out or it's on its last legs, developers stop making games for it. You know, they go to something else. We haven't seen that with VR. Developers are still churning out games. It's just there aren't a lot of publishers looking to support it. So developers are on their own to do a lot of the marketing. And as a result, you know, like Jim said, a lot of the marketing for these things comes out of, of work, you know, word of mouth, you know? So it's one of the, it's like, we don't want it to die. That That's, we're going to keep trying this and, until, you know, something breaks and something happens. And I would love to say that, you know, one of the Oculus is, you know, headsets is going to be that watershed moment, but not until they get rid of that mandatory Facebook integration. That's, I mean, that's exactly the part that I... My my problem with it is is bulk comfort, ease of use. It's all, I Facebook integration, whatever. Like, the platforms have been forcing us onto their platforms since the dawn of platforms. I'm not concerned about that. I mean, I don't like it, but that doesn't, as a business, it doesn't bother me. Uh, no, my problem is the usability of a VR headset, even the Quest 2, which is honestly the best so far as far as like just put it on and go. Um, it, we still got a ways to go with it. But yeah, I think as developers, we really believe in it, right? That we're going to see something with VR. And as a result, I think we will eventually find that. And I don't know if it's going to be Facebook and, and Quest or some other company, um, you know, Valve or somebody, somebody else entirely. Uh, that that gets us there, but it's just got to get slimmer. It's just going to get easier, um, and that's why at the start I was talking about AR as as an alternative, right? Uh, where if we start seeing real money come into AR hardware, we will see money flow into AR developers. 
Uh, and it may be the same thing uh, that we saw in the past where we have a flash in the pan moment of just there's money now and tomorrow there's no money. Uh, or it could be like the VR uh, or maybe even Steam experience where we see year after year just sort of steady incremental growth. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's impossible to say, but as developers, to ignore it would be at your own peril. All right, so I'm going to ask the question that's probably going to start a shitstorm, but, you know, this is this is what I do, and, and sometimes I enjoy shitstorms. So what do you think about, you know, Web3 being that next watershed moment? Because I can tell you there's a sh ton of money getting thrown into it. Oh, here comes the shitstorm. No. Yes. I, I, I think, first of all, I want to say that I'm using the, I'm using AR and Web3 sort of interchangeably, right? I think one cannot exist oh. without the other. Um, See, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I thought you were still talking about just normal AR. No, but I'm not it, talking about like holding your phone up. And, well, that's, uh, what, that's what AR means to me. Oh, uh, no, 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 my friend. We're talking about integrated web content in the real world through it's got to be through some sort of optical input though so usually people think about glasses i mean in theory someday maybe contacts or, or similar things who knows oh yeah why not right because well, i got tired of wearing contacts that's yeah, I, don't, me too. I don't really want to go back to that i but... got i got too old and uh and uh yeah um I don't yes. care. I don't care anymore if, if I'm more beautiful without my glasses. It's more comfortable <laughs> to wear glasses. No, we're older. We have the gray hair and the glasses. That means we're smarter, Joe. That's, that's, oh, right. Yeah, see? Yeah, that's my story. So what I'm saying is, yeah, this is this is the, the future money pit or money pile, uh, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, is this idea of integrating Web3 into, into our lives, right? which is, again, very dystopic in a lot of people's minds and very much could be uh, in reality. But who cares if you can make a cool AR game where you can make a couple million dollars and walk away? Uh, so, you know, let the dystopia come for those developers who have no conscience or soul. <laughs> That's, um, it is, it's like I said, right before we got started, our last live podcast, was on crypto and, and web three and we went for like two hours because everybody was just absolutely it is one of those things right now where we're seeing a bunch of money you know we've got companies that are like we're paying up to two million dollars to get games even games that exist right now moved over to you know the platform um but yeah it's it's also like easily yeah, the, the, the most divisive thing people, i've seen in yeah. years the yeah, the key there will be getting those those people with those wallets, the, the, getting them to understand that you can't just move a game over to AR Web3, right? You'll end up with the VR, what was it, the Oblivion or whatever. The, no, the, I'm, I'm too old. What's the, what's the, the Bethesda game uh, for VR? Whatever it was, uh, the stupid one, the dragons. <laughs> the, yeah, Skyrim. Skyrim, yeah, yes. thank you. My brain just turned off there. Yeah, you get end up with Skyrim VR, which is just like, eh, not good. it's not good, right? But this is the way that we always see this stuff happening. They they haven't had time to develop a proper game from scratch for the platform yet, and so the first step is always, okay, we got this new tech, we're gonna pay people to integrate it. It's, it's very similar to stuff that we see on hardware with, you know, like Facebook funds and, and things like that. It's hey 
we realized, and this is what I tell our clients, we have a lot of tech companies that come to us and because they know we have deep reach in the industry and we know all these publishers and developers and they're like, will you help us get your game, our stuff in front of all these people? And I tell them point blank, the easiest way to do that is just simply pay the developers. You know, that's because everybody's getting hit with some kind of integration that they want every single week. You know, it's a matter of, you know, how are you going to make it stand out? All right. So let's talk about uh, hardware and, and marketing and I'm opportunities, sure. because that's one of the things that we obviously wanted to hit on. One, uh, everybody always likes free stuff. Um, but two, yeah. what are, you know, especially with you being with, with Antlion now, but, you know, you've been doing this for a very long time anyway. How can developers, especially indie developers, make the most of opportunities with hardware companies in general? So I think this is going to be the most valuable takeaway from this whole thing. So congratulations. You just sat through 36 minutes of just us <laughs> guessing. Uh, <laughs> The most valuable thing. They're used actually, to this podcast. They're, you know, 90% of it is BSing. So it's all good. The the most valuable takeaway here is that hardware companies, Antlion Audio included, we are looking for, always looking for developers uh, to reach out to us who are interested in our products for a variety of reasons. You know, maybe it's, hey, I want to do streaming and I need a better microphone. We want to be involved with game developers. Uh, because one, it lends us legitimacy. Two, it's good PR. Uh, three, it's just an opportunity for us to get our name out there again, right? And so at the cost of hardware, which of course for us is at essentially manufacturing cost, we can get you gear, we can get you, uh, we can use our existing platform to promote your game, your product, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, and usually there's very few strings attached to it. Like, you know, if a developer reaches out to me and says, hey, I want a mod mic uh, wireless. Woo, look at that. Uh, I want a mod mic wireless uh, for my stream. I'm going to be doing dev streams and, you know, here's my game. I'll say, yeah, send me a copy of your game and I'll send you a microphone. Um, and, you know, if you could give us a shout out on, on your on your stream. That's it. That's all, all there is to it. Like. Bam, deal done. And, uh, you know, as that relationship can progress, there might be more and more things we can do together all the way up to, you know, uh, helping you get your get your game out to the public. You know, we have a pretty big newsletter and we're a small company, right? You make a deal with uh, Logitech and somebody and you could you could really reach a lot of people. And so I think even I, back when I was doing PR, never considered this angle. Uh, I never thought to myself, you know who I should be sending PR emails to? Hardware companies, you know. But it, it pretty much makes sense for any hardware company, even tangentially connected to the gaming space, right? We want to reach gamers. So how do we do that? Um, one of the best ways is, of course, through game developers. It's, it's pretty obvious when you stop and think about it. But yeah, we never, uh, I never did that, basically, when I was in uh, PR for games. And uh, it was a missed opportunity. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash 
publisher-list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. I remember one of the very first E3s I went to, which was actually in Atlanta to say how old I am. Jesus. We got this letter back when, because you know, people used to have to send shit by letter. We got a letter from Logitech and they're like, so you're going to be, you know, having a booth at E3, which we didn't have a booth. We didn't, we just had a meeting space in Kentia Hall. Um, do you need any hardware? And we thought it was a joke. So we checked off like literally everything on the box, on the thing and, and like three of them each. And then sure as shit, when we got there, there was a gigantic box of gear waiting on us in our booth. And all they asked was that, you know, we put a little tab up next to our, the PCs that we had. This said, you know, powered by Logitech or, or whatever it was. And it is one of those things that, again, a lot of developers, don't think about one of the most successful games I have ever worked on was a oh god like an adventure game in Flash not like Flash like we have now but like the the fancy version of Flash that we used to put on the discs and you know sell to people and because they it was like the PC gamer disc you talk about it was a publisher who only operated in Spain and they had a cover mount distribution agreement with one of the biggest companies in, I mean, one of the biggest newspapers in Spain. I think we did over a million units there. Now, obviously we weren't selling it for, you know, 30, 20, $30. We only got like a little bit for each one, but we moved a load of units and it's because, you know, of these hardware or OEM or cover mount or whatever you want to say, opportunities that are out there that a lot of developers don't don't think about in terms of this is a way that we can, you know, raise a little bit more money and, and augment what we're doing. Yeah, I had a similar experience at E3. I was there for Battle Over Britain 2, and we also just had a meeting room. And I realized after we set up that we didn't have a joystick. So I just walked over to SciTech and I was like, can, we, can I get a joystick for our demos? And they're like, please take it. <laughs> Make people use our product, you know, like, because we got, you know, tons of press rolling through there. Uh, and yeah, obviously they want people touching their product. It just didn't occur. Like I walked up all nervous thinking like I was going to have to like, you know, talk them into it. It was like, it was. You, you was feel like that obstacle. mooch that's like, I'm just here for free shit. That's the only reason I'm here. It's like, no, we actually kind of need one. I, I think that's also a, a really common, especially when you're not in the marketing realm for a long time. Uh, if you're new to it, uh, you feel really nervous asking for people, asking people for things, you know? Uh, you and I, Jay, have, have long past that point but you yeah, might you, you get, you get over that at, at some point yes <laughs> uh yeah asking people for stuff makes people nervous uh and as indie developers who have not spent 20 years doing pr work uh no that's normal no that's that's a normal reaction when you're new to this uh and get over it just ask people for shit <laughs> it, it, one of the the first things that i tell anybody when i'm you know giving presentations or just talking about business in general is the worst they can say is no 
whether you're sending them your you know, game to look at or you're asking for hardware or you're talking to a streamer, the worst they can say is no. And, you know, nine times out of 10 in today's world, they're just going to ghost you anyway. So you don't even have to hear the word no. You, yeah, I'm actually happy when somebody says no to me because it means that I know they read the email at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you know they at least opened it. A lot yeah, of them, you know, you know, they don't necessarily always read it. I'll take um, a hard no over a, over a, well, I'll send this person another email next week. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, so Callie Jumeo, Jumeo, and God, I probably crucified that name, but we're, we're going to go with it anyway, has a, a good point. You know, a lot of these opportunities are are hard to get. So let's talk about making things like this more accessible. You know, how do I mean, obviously you're here, everybody, Joe, Joe's on the discord. You know, you can go and ping him and ask him for mics and, and cameras and, you know, that poster behind him of the day like and you know whatever else that you i'm not need. sending i got that i was in london i had to get had to go over to london for that poster <laughs> we, and we can't get there now so you can't have that yet <laughs> um but how do you how as an indie dev how do you find these opportunities that's a great question uh you know and and to some degree i don't know the answer uh because again as i just said when i was doing pr i never thought of it. I only thought of it after I joined the hardware world and started looking at it from the opposite angle. Uh, but I would say Discord is actually a good place to start. Um, so pretty much every company has a Discord and there you can find usually a community manager and that community manager will have to kick it up the chain to the next person, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If you're real lucky, you can, or real clever, you can find certain places like Indie Game Business or um, uh, like the build a PC Reddit Discord. Uh, I've got a couple on my list here. I'm just sort of scrolling through them while I'm talking. Uh, places where you can actually see a list of people on the right-hand side there that show like, hey, this is an industry person for this company. Aha, then you say, uh, that, is the, that is the guy I will, I will send a message to and ask, you know, hey, I'm this guy, this developer with this game and I need this piece of hardware and I'd like to talk about doing some co-marketing opportunities. And they'll, you know, they may or may not be the right person, but generally speaking, they'll be professional enough to kick it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yes. Yeah. So if you're smart, you're in any game business. <laughs> if they're not there, they're probably not worth talking to. I wouldn't say that. There's tons of places that we, I did notice that we're almost at 4,000 people in the Discord now. And I was just like, oh my God. Um, all right, so I will add to that. There is a there is a way to go and do this. Um, it requires a lot of, as we like to say, grunt work. You know, getting, getting well, we don't really get dirty in this industry. You know, you're not out in the mud digging for something. I have no but, calluses. Yes, exactly. As as my 10-year-old says, Dad, I don't know why you're tired from work. All you do is push buttons all day. It's like, yes, that's exactly what I do all day. Um, it takes a little bit of research, but going and, and you know, the Discord route, and I still say Discord is like one of the most underutilized business tools that we have in the industry right now because of, you know, basically the access that you can get to so many different people. But it's a matter of going and you know, you can start on Twitter, you can start on Google, research and find all of these companies that are, that do hardware. And there are a lot of them and some of them are owned by others. So it gets a little confusing here and there. Um, 
but that's exactly you know what we started doing you know years ago another thing is go on twitch and youtube and look twitch is very easy because everybody has a panel underneath their um underneath their stream that says here are all my sponsors if they're sponsoring that person they're sponsoring other people so you know that's another good place to go and find um especially like hardware sponsors and and things two like two that, you know, notes to that. What's that? Uh, two additional notes to that one linkedin you missed linkedin of, of all things i yeah. i know but i get a little tired of constantly harping about linkedin when everybody looks at me well and your all right home. well i'll harp it for you too yes. <laughs> um not only do you know they're sponsored but it's not so unusual to reach out to the content creator especially if they're smaller and ask them for an introduction to the person you need to talk to like content creators will help game developers and they'll you know they don't ask anything for it you know they're mostly nice people so if you you know you run to somebody they've got i don't know whatever 100 200 concurrent people and are sponsored by anline audio and you you send them a message hey you know i'm a developer of this game and i was hoping one you could review my game but two could you give me an intro to the guy at anline audio they'll be like sure <laughs> like it's that simple you know it's a networking you know on the on the base scale and it is front work though it is a lot of legwork it is going to a lot of web pages and opening a lot of tabs and sending a lot of messages so that is the that is the life of doing pr for games is and it's only gotten worse as we've uh, progressed through the years right in the old days we had like six seven really important people to talk to <laughs> like that was yes. it like, now you know when i'm doing a pr campaign for something i am sending tens of thousands of individual emails you know if if a streamer has 25 people this is for software more than hardware the streamer's got 25 people watching their stream i want them playing my game you know like hardware it's a little i have to go a little higher because it actually costs us cost me something to send them a product but but Junie's calling me out because she and I had the conversation the other day about, you know, how difficult it is to find sponsors for, you know, IGB and all this stuff. And it's not, it is the grunt work. And we do have that list of companies that we know are possible, but it's also having the time to do it. And that's the biggest problem over here right now. It's like, you know, IGB is like an offshoot of it was actually literally yeah, it's not my hobby bills and the so, inline audio igb sponsorship is not gonna not gonna not gonna bring home the bacon well i mean but but even so i mean there are things that, and yes you and i are going to talk after the show about all of this but you know for igb there are there's obviously the exposure route we want to let more developers know what we're doing but to be blunt, this has grown beyond anything that I had imagined and we need to actually hire people. And so <laughs> that's where the sponsors come in. And, and it's a, it is absolutely just a, it's a lot of work to go out and, and find them. Um, Speaking of which, Antlion Audio, we're hiring marketing uh, staff. I haven't made the job posting yet. So if you want to get in before anybody else, uh, drop me a DM if you've got a couple of years experience doing marketing PR, we need you. I was going to say, you know, how, how many levels of experience? All right. You know, is this something that you've got coming straight out if of the If you're super passionate, have no experience, that's that's possible. Ideally, a couple of years experience. You know, you've written some press releases and, you know, uh, sent emails Channel. to 
influencers. I've written press releases. I mean, that doesn't mean they're good, you know? <laughs> just means... Don't worry, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> you send me what you wrote, and I'll tell you whether or not they're good. <laughs> um, all right, we have a, a very good question in, in chat. Can you pull... Yes. So how do you write so many emails? I take hours to just to send one. I'm going to kick this to you, Joe. You're right. When yeah. you've got like all these things to get out there, how do you do it without... How do you strike that balance between I have to send this to 10,000 people and I can't make it look like I just form emailed all this shit. So here's how I do it, Calix. First, you gotta, you can't take hours sending an email. Um, usually my method is this. I have what is essentially a copy paste email, right? That has the key things I need to get across. Um, and I write it in a, what I consider a pretty organic way. That's my approach. Um, you know, so it's not like a corporate email. It's like, you know, Hey, we got this cool thing coming out. It's here's a picture of it. It's here's what it does. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Then at the very top of that, I write about three or four sentences specifically to somebody and I hit send. And that's how, that's how it works. So I use, um, oh man, what is the name? I'll have to open it up while, while I'm talking and hopefully I can, I can do so. Uh, nope, I can't, I can't click and talk at the same time. I just learned I use a tool called, uh, mail merge with attachments. <laughs> That's why it's such a generic name, uh, which is essentially a spreadsheet tool. And what that can allow you to do is, is basically send things from your email, uh, as if you'd sent them by writing out, pressing the send button. So one column is basically, uh, the stuff that's going to go at the top of the email. And then the there's basically a Google, a Gmail draft that it pulls the rest of the stuff from. And then by doing that, and I hit hit the button, it, it just sends them one after the other. So all I have to do is write three sentences per person. Uh, you know, hey, Jay, how are your kids doing? Uh, you know, it's been a while since we've talked. I've got this cool product. Ch come check it out. Bam, it's now a personal email. And yes, Jay's going to know that the bottom of his copy paste, but what does he care? I've at least taken the time to say, Hey, how are your kids? <laughs> <laughs> That's yes, you, you nailed it. That's it. It's like I don't get angry when I get cold emails that are obviously form emails from people. I get angry when I get cold emails from people that obviously don't know the first damn thing about what we're doing. And you know, I get those at conferences all the time. It's like, hey, you know we're working in such and such a studio what sort of outsourcing 3d art assets do you need and i'm like yeah. we're a consulting firm we don't need any 3d art assets but yeah i get i get a lot of hey i love your headphones we don't make headphones <laughs> <laughs> they, we make attachments that's a, that's a big for, strike for right there yes uh, it, it is always you can't effectively you know do marketing and business in this industry without having a library of templates that you use. And so that's the other part, you know, that goes along with everything. It's like, don't ever, don't ever delete content that you made. If you sat down and spent an hour to making, you know, like Joe said, the body of that email draft, save that somewhere, you know, so you don't have to go back and do it all over again later yeah, you don't want to see my gmail drafts folder it's a it is a giant mess ours are all stored on our crm there's a whole section for like email. you're way more organized than me yes. 
<laughs> which is the other thing that we could talk about in this industry about how unorganized the majority of us actually are yeah. you know that do this for a living um but you know game dev says so basically it's always cold shot emails yes a lot of times most of the time you know, unless unless really i am is. sending an email to us what i consider a super major you know if i'm sending an email to ninja yeah i'll write something i'll write something specifically for him you know if i'm sending an email to uh, you know somebody somebody truly massive then yeah i'll take i'll take extra time i don't think i'll take an hour but i'll take 15 minutes 10 minutes if, if they are of that level of importance but even people of sort of medium size you know if they got 500,000 youtube subscribers that's medium size right to me uh yeah they're getting they're getting the the, the cold email with a warm intro <laughs> now here's the second part of that equation you can't ever send that cold email and then like never talk to them again you know it's we talk to you know our clients that a lot of times it's the second and the third follow-up that people actually see oh okay you're like legitimate and you actually are interested in working with us so yes you are going to batch send a whole bunch of emails but it's very important that you follow up with those as well and you know establish that legitimacy and tell people like hey and a lot of times just simply remind them it could have been sitting in their inbox for you know a week you, you absolutely never know so Yep, I've got, there's basically a workflow that happens whenever you're sending these cold emails. So first there's the initial email um, and that goes out to everybody. Obviously everybody who says yes to whatever it is I'm asking them to do, uh, they go into a, a new bucket of, of people. Everybody who says no, go into a new bucket. But that's again, much more rare than option three, which is they don't say anything. In which case they just get another email a week later. Uh, that's my method. Sometimes it's two weeks, depending on what's going on. But usually a week or so is, is my initial initial email, follow-up email, uh, one week later, and then I take a two or three week break and send the third email. If they have not responded by three emails, I usually drop them unless they are somebody that I think really is the right fit for whatever it is I'm doing. Like there, there's no reason they wouldn't have gotten back to me. You know, if we're making a new microphone and it's, you know, let's say podcastage, a great uh, microphone resource. And Andrew over there has, has, has not, um, not replied to me then i would be like all right like i need to like sit down and formally write something and reach out to him in another way maybe right maybe not email maybe i go find his him on discord and hit him up there um so that's my sort of waterfall uh methodology i guess all right so do you can you track whether or not they've opened that email uh, tracking opens is possible um but most a lot of programs block it um it's not reliable is my problem with it's, it's not reliable but for what it does it's helpful because we do the same thing and you know i'm going to call out jennifer because she's just popped up and made a comment if you want to know anything about how to send a lot of emails and people to respond to them uh all of those from the power group come from jennifer and she is a goddess at it you know she's the one that handles all of this and, and makes sure that we don't sound like idiots coming up once in day, well, one day at a time. But that's one of the things that our CRM does. And so it's like, when you send those three, email, three emails to Andrew and he hasn't responded, if it looks, if we see people who, we see people who haven't responded to three emails, but they've opened one of those emails 21 times. And it's like, okay, 
something is going on there. And, and if it's nothing, then maybe maybe the email's bad or maybe you got the wrong person or it's going to the spam filter or you know something along those lines. And so that tracking mechanism, it's not flawless, but it's helpful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it feels like Russian roulette. Another, another, somebody comments. Uh, it does. It's a lot less dangerous. Uh... <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, it's the level of creepy, you know, that bar keeps changing. So, uh, Calix says, somebody sent me a second email, says, thanks for opening my last email. And even though they didn't reply and it felt super creepy, that's because I'm willing to bet you that person was wanting, using one of the automated tools that are out there on the internet and there's plenty of them. So what, and we used to use one of these, but we don't use it anymore. It will send an email and then that system knows whether it was opened or not. And then it falls into a different little workflow path and it will automatically send another one later, or it will send you a notification that says the person didn't respond or yeah. whatever. But those tools are actually far more common than you think, but they're we not use, typically. We use a similar tool for if you, if you add an item to a cart on our site and don't check out, you'll get an email from us yeah badgering you to buy our stuff <laughs> why did you leave you left shit in your do you cart. not love me yes it says <laughs> I, I love you know getting those emails it's like you left something in your cart and i'm like yeah i know i have add <laughs> leave me alone okay i'll get back never, to it we will eventually. never leave you alone you're on the list now oh <laughs> uh, all right we got one from you know the discord and we're at our hour mark so we're probably going to wrap this up fairly shortly but if you have questions about marketing or hardware or any of this sort of stuff drop them in chat wherever you're watching or if you're on the discord drop in the podcast questions uh joe will be happy to answer all of this for you so the question is how would you go about promoting a crowdfunding campaign like what would your bucket list be you know when you set it up oh boy um it has been so caveat it has been a long time since i've done a crowdfunding campaign the last one I did was for Move Love, but I will say we raised like $2 million. So pretty successful. <laughs> that works. Um, <laughs> so how would you go about it? Uh, boy, in the shortest way I could answer this is the, a, a lot of the work is in the setup right getting the right assets together getting the right video together you need to tell a really compelling story in crowdfunding right move love i cheated because it's a well-known product it was well it's a well-known visual novel in japan uh so i had a really unfair advantage not only because people already knew it but also because uh we already had a lot of assets so first things first before you even do any marketing is or any PR is the marketing side that everybody really never talks about, which is just making stuff and making it look good. Uh, the second step of that, of course, is the bucket list of who do I need to get on my side for this? And you want to do that before the, before the crowdfunding campaign even starts, right? Let's say, let's say I'm making, uh, uh, I'm, I'm try, trying to think of a good a good match here. Um, let's just say I'm making a first person shooter, and uh, I know somebody at Phase Clan or somebody like that, or some some large organization. They're not going to do it for free, of course, or not not as officially, but maybe unofficially, I could get one of the players to, you know, help me out. 
right? So you need to be reaching out to people before you launch that Kickstarter campaign, getting them lined up and ready to go. Uh, you want them to be on your side, to be excited about the, the thing, and, you know, even up to involving them with the creation of the assets. Um, I always said the, the best thing about hiring content creators to do voice work for you is that it's free publicity because they're going to promote the fact that they're in the game. And it's like the, the, the backdoor way to get somebody to cover your product um, and get, you know, usually some okay voice acting out of it as well. As an example. Anyway, lining people up prior to launch. Um, then the standard stuff, the standard PR stuff at launch of I've got a Kickstarter. Do um, You need, in my opinion, you need something to show, something to play. Uh, so you need... Um, you can't just have a Kickstarter, hey, I've got a dream and I want you to help me make it a reality. You need to have the reality already in hand. So uh, I'm sure that's been said many, many times. You need something you can send people to play and promote. They can't just promote the concept of your Kickstarter. Uh, after that, I don't know. You just take a bath in money, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we've had Anya on here like multiple times. And one of the things that she always says, and it's it's a really good takeaway that I didn't even, I wasn't aware of until we started, you know, talking to her about this stuff. And if you don't know Anya, she's the director of games at Kickstarter. So she knows a little bit about this sort of stuff. Anya Combs? Yeah. Yep. I know her. <laughs> yes. The, um... She and I worked that, together back when she was at Addicting Games uh, at Nickelodeon. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Again, small industry here. The, yeah, that's what you learn really when you talk to somebody been around as long as Jay and I is. Everybody knows everybody. Yes. But I mean, on, Anya always says Anya. it comes seventy to eighty percent of the revenue from your Kickstarter comes from the community that you already have. So you have to go into that Kickstarter realizing you're not going to find a bunch of money that way you've got to build that community from the ground up um that's the that's the first part if you don't have that community ready and that community behind you when you go live uh it's you're not going to get nearly as much as uh, reception as you think you might all right so next question from Lee over on YouTube. How do you feel about selling NFTs to raise development funds? I don't have a strong opinion about it. Um, I, I, if you can, like if you, you know, I, I assume we're talking about selling sort of part of the game, assets in the game or, or similar, maybe even rights to the game in part or in whole. Um, you know, if you can find somebody willing to, to throw down money uh, for such a thing and you're okay with what you're giving away, there, I don't have a problem with it. Um, my only general gripe about NFTs in general is, um, first, they're entirely built on trust. Most things are. We trust that Steam won't go away tomorrow and remove my library of games. Uh, similarly, NFTs, you trust that people will continue to believe that that NFT is the thing it points to. Right, so if it's a if it's a pointing if it's a web URL pointing to an image, that that web URL won't change, and that the image, you know, that NFT has value. Um, and so one, you have to uh, you have to accept that. I'm not an NFT expert, by the way. <laughs> but two, um, I'm, I'm sort of 
I'm on the fence about the environmental impact of NFTs. Um, so I'm, I'm always like a little concerned about like people not understanding that. So I just want to throw that out there that NFTs are very energy intensive to create, sell and transact with. So as long as you're okay with that and, or, you know, the transaction is of value enough to, to offset that, then I don't have a problem with it. Kind of a non-answer. <laughs> it, it, it's it's way early on all of this stuff that's the that's the reality of it um all right so from barry zoo what makes you want to donate to a crowdfunded product uh, what makes me want to donate to a crowdfunded project almost nothing because i believe I, i'm i'm against like early access games let alone like crowdfunded games <laughs> personally like don't get me wrong i'll sell your crowdfunded game i'll sell your 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 early access game to the to the to the moon but personally i like the concept of paying for something and getting it not paying for the idea that something might someday exist um that aside i think what makes most people want to donate is very much a a knee-jerk passion response right you get it's 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 all about hype is what makes people want to donate. You need to build real excitement over over a product, or whether that's physical or, or digital. Um, it has to it has to promise the moon, and whether it delivers the moon is essentially unimportant. It has to promise something that will really get people excited. Um, and it doesn't have to be like you don't have to be like I'm promising the you know the first full dive virtual reality headset, right? You don't have to promise the moon in that regard. You have to promise like, this is going to be a game with community that you will love, right? Like the kind of community that 20 years, you'll have some guy on a podcast talking about a mud he played, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> that level of, you know, uh, of commitment. And you have to deliver it in a way that people will believe it, right? And I think that's what makes people want to pay money, essentially. <laughs> This is where Joe and I can get on like our our, our old person get off my lawn, you know, <laughs> scenario. It's, it's, it's every time a game comes out and a the servers don't work at launch or b something goes haywire with what they pre-ordered. You know, I'm sitting here at my you know staring at my phone or looking at my PC, going, "Why the fuck are you still pre-ordering games?" It's, it's like that. Yes, it made sense years and years ago. And I actually pre-ordered two copies of Diablo 2 back in the day because I didn't know which one I was going to get first. And I damn sure wanted to have it on, on day one. The That's a little bit of what's happened, you know, to Kickstarter for me. It's like I don't, you know, I don't sign on to nearly as many of them as I used to because I'm just like, look, if it's good, it's going to make it to market. You know, it, it'll get it'll get done and I can get it then. But early access is to me a whole nother brilliant thing that Steam and the community has done in general. Think about how much effort we used to have to put into getting on the beta. And it's like, if you wanted to be in the beta for a Diablo or a World of Warcraft or for whatever game that was coming out, you had to know somebody. And trust me, all of us behind the scenes we're calling in those favors at different companies. It's like, yo, 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 get me in the you know beta for this. I want to play this. And it went from that to, you know, I don't know if it was Steam themselves or some developer going, wait a minute, wait, wait. What if we just charged people to get into our betas and made money while we were doing it? And I'm like, 
okay see that's absolutely you, you know brilliant and and i do see the value of early access and i do you know get in on early access games but it's also because there's always something you know there that i can look at and i can play and i can watch it evolve now, granted, what normally happens is I get in on the early access and then I play it for a little bit and then I'm like, ah, I really want to play this when it's done. And then I don't touch it again until it goes, you know, full live and that sort of stuff. But yes, See, I have the opposite problem. I, I, I'm not saying I never buy early access games for the record. I do. But my problem is I buy a game in early access. I play it a bunch and then I stop playing it. It launches and I don't come back to it because I feel like I've already done everything I want to do in the game. Maybe there's tons of stuff I missed, but. I've already burned myself out on it. You should adopt my model. You know, that's that's what I do. It's, it's I bought Baldur's Gate. I played it for a little bit. And then I was like, yeah, I have shitting in there. And I'm getting a little crash-tastic over here. I'm going to just wait for it to come out. I did it with Subnautica, too. And I played the hell out of that game. And then it got to, you know, launch. And I was like, I've already seen the vast majority of this stuff. But then I went and, you know, played I'll it again. I'll probably anyway. come back to Baldur's Gate 3. But I'm not certain of that even. What I don't like is when you get like an early access game and it's awesome, and then they keep working on it and working on it, working on it, and then it starts to suck. <laughs> well, that's because you didn't give enough feedback then. That's Maybe called feature creep. Well, uh, no, it's like leave the game as it is. Quit putting stuff in it. Quit doing this. Quit changing it. Quit my, making it My better. favorite, and this is this is uh, my favorite game of the pandemic was Blazeball. Mm-hmm. And that was the whole plot of Blazeball. I don't know how if you guys followed Blazeball at all or anybody in. I didn't play it, but I know what it is. Yes, uh, the concept was that they're telling a story that adding more stuff does not make a game better. That was the meta story that was really being told, uh, and they did it live so that by the end of Blazeball, you had like you had people who had been in the game the the entire time it had no idea what was going on like they couldn't follow the game anymore because it had become so bloated and complex and then you know the whole world ended <laughs> right that's that, that's how it ended that's how they and, ended the game. and you know it's they're they're gonna bring it back supposedly mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah we, we, i think we... i think honestly it was the singular most brilliant game concept i've ever seen in my entire career really yeah, there's nothing that's ever been like it Blaseball. and may never be something like it uh, where you have a game that is telling a story about game development secretly, like without anybody else realizing it for months. I didn't realize that that's what they were doing. I just thought it was an absolute off the wall random. Dan, if you're, if you're not familiar, take a roguelike RPG system where there's like all these different attributes you can get and and turn that into a baseball team. And I would say take a baseball simulator and combine it with Cthulhu. Yes. <laughs> but with but with all of the prefixes and suffixes of like a Diablo so there's all completely broken mechanics that you can get in there and yeah it was but I I honestly I did not realize that this that, that So yeah the way it works is every week they would add a new feature to the game so to speak right and they called the well they had different eras but every week there was something new they would add to the game and every week something new would add complexity to the game until it reached this sort of breaking point and you know they it was it was actually pretty clearly stated by them that that's the story they were trying to tell is that more is not necessarily more wow <laughs> sometimes you so know, it started out where you're just like jumping in place or something and then mm-hmm. after a while you're like <laughs> 
Uh, after a while, it's more like, you know, a standard one, two counts. And I don't know, maybe just the weather is currently peanuts. And that's like, you know, it's raining peanuts. Like, okay, that's weird. And it eventually gets to the point where it's like, I've got a guy, he's got this equipment. He's got like, he's got like, uh, he's got the, the stadium has like 10 different mods attached to it. I've got like the player with 10 different mods attached to him. You know, like there's like three meta games going on in the background at the same time <laughs> that you have to follow. Like it was, it was intense and brilliant. Uh, so my hat's off to. Um, so what about once you play the update, Seattle. you can't go backwards, right? And play it. You can't. Play yeah, it. no, no, you can't. It's it was all done in real time. That's awesome. Uh, well, but I mean, and players love the game too. It has an, an actual band, like uh, you know, fans of the Seattle garages created a garage band, a live garage band that they have an album out on Spotify. If you want to find it. What the uh, shit? Yeah. You really been... missed a whole cultural revolution during the pandemic. I mean, I was trapped inside for a long time. So, <laughs> and this is how far things can go off the rails when, you know, everybody's stuck at home with right. nothing to do for two years. It's um completely randomness that's out there, but all right, Joe, Thank you so much. I am so freaking sorry it took you forever to get on this thing, but that's my that's my world. Two but year we'll wait, have... well worth it. Oh, let's, we'll... let's not wait another two years. Right. No, 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 no. Now you're one of us, and and one, of, been us. one of you. One of us. I'll, I'll get you promoted on the Discord to you know guests of the show and and all that fancy stuff that we do. Ooh. Um, all right, so everybody out there, remember in two weeks, oh god, my brain is gonna die. Uh, the next indie game business session event is coming up. We've already got a fantastic group of speakers, we're still solidifying some of those speakers as well. Um, it's completely free to come on and listen to the speakers and, and even interact, ask questions, because a lot of the stuff that we're going to do is panel AMAs. Uh, we do ask that you get a ticket, even though it's free, um, simply because that's how we'll send you the slide decks and stuff that everybody, you know, will have. And that's always everybody's question in the middle of a presentation. It's like, can we get the slide deck? Yes, you can. We actually, Dan actually emails everybody that got them a nice little Dropbox folder that has all that stuff in it. Um, and if you do want to do meetings, I mean, we've got tons of publishers coming. We've got lots of developers. There's over 40 some projects already in the showcase. Um, it's a 50 buck ticket. And if you use the code friend of IGB, uh, you'll get 20% off of that. Uh, oh, shit, and, nobody. Shh, yeah. And the other big secret is if you're a developer and you've got a demo and you need a publisher and you can't afford a $50 ticket, message me and I'll give you one because this is the way, this is what we do. This, this is the form. way. This is the way. Yes. <laughs> this is the this way. Is the way. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, aside from that. You'd be amazed how much free stuff you can get just by asking. That's the yes. real marketing takeaway. It is. It's absolutely is. Um, are you going to GDC, Joe? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> okay. I'll be there. Uh, I'll be over at, at the meet to match area because I have to get out and travel and see people in real life at some point. I, I just I just came back from Florida and that was enough. Oh, yeah, that's where Dan time. is. That's where and, I'm at. Whoop. And Dan of, catches COVID like every other people week, not wearing you know? masks. So it's um. Don't, that's don't. what it is here. There's no lockdown. There's no nothing. I know. Just... I know. I was in the mall and it was terrifying. People <laughs> are just doing. It's like normal here. All right, I gotta roll. Joe, thank you so much. Yes. Dan, you got anything you want to roll out with? Yes, I do. 
if you're not on the discord i why not that's just ridiculous no yes. discord.gg slash indie game business like jay said we got four thousand four thousand industry almost almost four thousand industry with with you joining it might be four thousand industry people in there i'm excited for two weeks Maybe we'll do something next Friday. Maybe we won't. You know, uh, it just depends. Four <laughs> we'll days before know. an event. It's like, we'll uh, let you know last minute what's going to happen. Don't, don't, and of course, you can not. find us no. and me at yes. lionaudio.com. Yep. And also, uh, Joe's Twitter is in the description here, which is basically at Antlion. Yeah, we're, we have a giveaway going on, too, right now on Twitter. So uh, And job openings. Job if openings, yeah. into the marketing you, side you of the industry. marketing chops. And tell Cost Joe that, you know, you heard about it on our show and he'll That's give right. you a 30% pay increase. Yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> All right. On that note, um, thanks, everybody. And we won't see you next Friday. I'll go ahead and tell you that because my brain's about to explode as it is. But mm -hmm. we will see you on the 9th and the 10th for the next Indie Game Business Sessions. I'm streaming though. See that right there. Yes, That's Dan. Right there. Dan can do whatever he wants. Yeah, I'm streaming. <laughs> and I'm doing controversial content on my channel, so come on. <laughs> All righty. Typical Florida man. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> All right. Thank you all. Bye. Thanks everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.